Hi, I'm Ryan Miner. I'm the host of a Minor Detail podcast where it's all about Maryland. We have a no-holds-barred conversation featuring Maryland newsmakers and newsbreakers, journalists, reporters, politicos, politicians, policy wonks, prognosticators, political activists, organizers, community leaders, and so many more. Man, that's a lot of peace. Here on a Minor Detail podcast, we get to the bottom of every story. We talk about news and politics in an open and honest format. And we find the minor details because every detail matters. You can follow us on the web at a aminordetailpodcast.com and aminordetail.com for the latest Maryland news and politics. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the show. All right, all right, all right. As uh, what's the famous actor Lynn that says that? All right, all right, all right. That's Matthew McConaughey, I believe, who who says I that. I that's and right. What a what a week it had. I mean, what a hell of a week it has been in Maryland politics to date. I believe, outside of the primaries or maybe the gubernatorial elections, this week in Maryland politics has just set the bar so high, and it was one of the newsiest weeks I can recall in years. My guest tonight is Lynn Foxwell, and tonight we're going to dissect what happened. Lynn, it's always a pleasure to have you. I know we did our last show together on Sine Die um, at the offices um, of um, of Capital Strategies. We had a blast that night. We got some good feedback, and Look, we kept it to an hour, and we, we got to talk about Sonny Dye, and unfortunately, Lynn, that night was was a little somber because of the passing of the late speaker, but uh, we're, we're yeah, here today. But we're here today, Lynn, to talk about all that happened, and look, let's start at the beginning of my week, Lynn. I left, I left the state on last Monday to attend the Joe Biden rally up in Pittsburgh. He was out in Lawrenceville. It's my old stomping grounds. I went to college in, in the city of Pittsburgh at Duquesne University, and I, I felt like I was at home. And I drove up to see uh, the former vice president announce his kickoff campaign for president of the United States. And of course, he announced the week prior to that in a video, released an online video. But then again, uh, he had this rally with firefighters and it was interesting. I stood next to some of the national press, um, saw some friends down there, and they're like, you know, Ryan Miner. They're like, I thought you were only Maryland. And I said, well, I am. And But it's good every once in a while, Lynn, to get outside of the state and get your feet wet with some, you know, some of the big players uh, on the national media. And here I am, this little guy that's trotting up a tripod and my iPhone and camera with the microphone and walking talking to people and they're like you know what's what is this guy doing he's out there you know just trying to get some scoops but that's uh yeah that's what i do i I remember i remember the night bill clinton was elected in 1992 and nbc news was holding an interview with uh the then senator arkansas senator dale bumpers the Rhodes scholar dale bumpers who had been a, a political mentor to bill clinton and and uh and he was talking about all of Clinton's accomplishments in Arkansas, but then he stopped and said, and now he belongs to the nation. And that's and how I be- feel about you. You got your you got your start in Washington County and yeah. then your your legend grew and expanded to Maryland and now you're 
now you belong to the nation. You're covering national politics, and next thing I expect to see is you uh, trudging through the snows of New Hampshire covering 21 Democratic uh, presidential prospects. It, it, it would be a dream of mine. And then fast forward to fast forward to Tuesday, I went to Baltimore County to cover the former aide to Republican delegate Rick Impolaria, who represents District 7. Tyler Walsh went to trial on a robocall campaign violation where he had last – the day before the June 26 primary, he uh, and a former Impolaria intern uh, orchestrated – a robocall where and and the whole call the whole process was kind of sleazy you know they they talked about the the nas- some national transgender group that um that was supporting Kathy Shalega who Impolaria sits in the same district serves the same district with and saying that you know Kathy Shalega is a friend of the transgender community and they really manipulated the image of the transgender community to do a political attack against a republican who in turn, didn't actually support it, but Mr. Walsh did not include a part, an authority line on the call, and so he went to trial for that. He was indicted by the state prosecutor um, in January, fired by uh, the speaker's office at that time, and so he faced trial on April 30th, and, the, uh, and then he ultimately was convicted but received probation, 100 hours of community service, supervised probation, and you know that was interesting, um, Lynn, and and you probably remember the Julius Henson case, which was referenced during the court um, proceedings. And the look in Maryland, don't mess around with the with the campaign robocall stuff or not including a party or not including a uh, an authority line, because they're out to get. They're not just out to get you, but. The the state prosecutor, they will indict you for that. I mean, this is serious stuff. When you violate the trust of the public for a campaign election violation, then you're messing with some serious uh, territory right there. And Mr. Walsh thought he was clever to to execute this call a day before the primary. It had no political effect on Kathy Schell. I guess she still won. But, you know, Len, that was that was an unfortunate situation that happened, and I'm sure the young man learned his lesson. Well, you certainly hope so. And and you mentioned the Julius Henson case. Obviously, the other defendant in that in that case back in uh, that stemmed from Bob Ehrlich's 2010 gubernatorial rematch with Martin O'Malley was Paul Shurek, who's a dear friend of mine, and just one of the just one of the finest people I've ever met in this business. So I've, we've been on opposite sides. We've been friends, uh, but he is one of the ablest and most um, decorated political operatives and in the uh, recent history of our state. And he's now doing some remarkable work for the Maryland Oyster Recovery Partnership. The similarities between the Henson-Shurik case and Walsh, you know, they're, they're there in substance. Um, I would never put Tyler Walsh on his best day in the same league as Paul Shurik. The best way, best way I can dismiss him is by saying, hopefully the experience has, as you suggested, taught the young man a lesson and maybe he'll grow up and, um, you know, uh, go about his business in a more honest way. Second chances are available to anyone who wants it that shows redemption. I've been given second chances before in my life, but I will tell you that uh, I, I'm hoping that this experience is as unfortunate as it is, will um, at least guide him in a new direction to look, stay in politics, express your opinion however you want to, but you still got to follow the law. You have to follow uh, the, the rules and procedures. And when you're a 
a volunteer for a campaign or if you're uh, even a, a state delegate, you have to respect the laws, especially if you're a lawmaker. Um, so fast forward to Wednesday, and Wednesday was the day, May 1st, the governor called a special session. Of course, in Maryland to call a special session, you often have to bring – we have one of these arcane – we have one of these arcane rules, Len, that they have to call in the state Senate in order to have a, a House of a House special session. So right. the Senate convene, then the House convene. But Len, driving into Annapolis that morning from Gaithersburg, uh, I left my house about seven o'clock. And you know, that morning I, I turned off my radio. I'm usually a frequent listener of the Howard Stern show. And I, I really turned off my radio and I sometimes when I'm driving, and you know this because you have a you have a little bit of commute coming from Easton into Annapolis, Lynn. Um, sometimes you just want peace in the morning. <laughs> and uh, when I'm, I like to think and reflect in my car and come up with ideas. And I was thinking that morning, man, today's going to be a historic day. Whatever happens, whether it was Maggie McIntosh, who is the chairwoman of the Appropriations Committee. Or if it was Derek Davis at, at the time, those two candidates who is the chairman of uh, the Economic Matters Committee. And, you know, I, I, I came in thinking, wow, you know, we just lost the speaker. It was, it's been some tough times. The speaker was a legend of his own in Annapolis. And now we are the governor has called for a special session at the request of the House of Delegates to elect a new speaker. And in 16 years, Len, we could have our first openly gay female speaker in the history of the state or our first African-American speaker. Well, coming into that, that, that day, I, you, we weren't thinking about a third party. We weren't thinking of, or rather a third person being involved in that race. It was a Maggie versus Derek race. Len, right. when you were driving into Annapolis that morning um, or wherever you were, what, what were your thoughts? How, how did you think of the race and how did you frame that race and let's go through this entire process because leading up to the race Lynn the the speaker's race was was very political you had you pitted two sides against one another there was the progressive progressives who really wanted a progressive and then there was the more moderates and let's go through the machinations of this entire process Lynn let's kick it off so you know what what are your some of your thoughts about this race in general leading up to it well, first, you, you mentioned that the state Senate convened uh, as per statutory requirement, but they didn't do anything. They just they were they were just checked in and they sat and they did nothing. So from my standpoint, it was one of the best state Senate sessions we've had in recent memory. <laughs> moving that moving that aside, uh, I, I like I like to carve this up three ways: the, the the run up to the vote, number two, the occurrences of of this past Wednesday, and then three where we go from here um you mentioned the historic nature of the of the race i mean one way or another we were going to have history uh we, if we elected uh delegate mcintosh then she was going to be the first woman speaker and she was going to be the first uh gay woman to be speaker as you pointed out and, and if derek davis had been elected he'd be the first african-american and um, so we were, we were, we were going to see a historic occurrence, no matter what I, I will say it was one of the nastiest, most negative races I've seen in some time. I don't think either side bathed themselves in glory. Um, uh, I saw it on one side, 
the progressive community come together to make what I thought was some pretty heavy-handed threats against against uh, supporters of Chairman Davis, and you know, really, they really went on the attack about him and his and his record, which was fair game. But then to call him a religious conservative, I don't think that was necessarily reflective who's, who's at all of that? the record he had. I, I'd seen I'd seen it posted on social media. I'd seen discussions about it, you know, in the great, the great vast wasteland that is the internet. Uh, <laughs> and then on the and then on the other hand, you had people like Delegate Daryl Barnes uh, apparently being quoted, and he did not deny that he made the statement that we cannot let a um, you know a, a, a white lesbian run the House of Delegates. So there was just a lot of nasty rhetoric on both sides, and I think what was frustrating to those who were outside, who were outside looking in, is that we never really heard either, neither Derek nor Maggie, engage the public and engage the House of Delegates in, in a meaningful discussion about how they, as Speaker, would make the institution better, how they could make it more transparent, how they would empower members of the caucus, members of the minority party, committee chairs, uh, to think and act independently and represent their districts. Uh, I, I didn't hear any kind of blueprint for moving the institution forward. It was just, you know, if you support Derek, well, you're not a progressive. If you don't, you know, if you support, if you, uh, and if you don't support, um, if you don't support Maggie, you're not a progressive. If you don't support Derek, well, you know, why not? Um, and it just took on a, it just took on a nasty tone and tenor. Fast forward to the actual day of the vote. I think Adrian Jones, you know, I, I don't know everything that happened on the inside. I just know what I read. None of us, were, neither you nor I, were in the room. But she came out looking remarkable. This is a woman who, in the days leading up to the vote, she had she had uh, she had thrown her hat in the ring in her own right, had had pulled out of the race endorsed Derek Davis's bid for speaker uh, because it was thought at the time that he had the best chance. He had been working it longer and he had an opportunity to uh, coalesce the black caucus and the Republicans. And so she, you know, she was not going to stand in the way of an African-American speaker. So, she, you know, it's not often in this business that you can attain the ultimate prize and look selfless and magnanimous in the process. She did, and she comes away as a remarkable winner. And uh, I think I think Delegate McIntosh and Delegate Davis, at the end, they, neither both of them realized that they had kind of reached their high water mark, and that they weren't neither were going to get to 71 without a protracted and divisive battle on the floor. And so it seemed that the you know at the at the at that moment, they they both stepped up and did the right thing. Now I'm sure there was a lot more to the story, but that's the way it was portrayed. And uh, in defeat, I think both of them looked good as well. Um, they both did. They, in, in, in fact, to to highlight that, they Maggie made the motion for Adrian Jones to become the speaker on the floor, and Derek Davis second that, and. Backing up, let's go through some of the, the the contentious stuff. Let's 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 talk about you. You mentioned that this was an ugly race, and, and I, I'd like to talk through that, and I'd like to to, to understand because that defined 
the lead up to the actual vote. And then, as you mentioned, you broke it down perfectly, Lynn. You know, you had the lead up the day of and then sort of what happens next now that Adrian Jones is the speaker. Um, so leading up to this, after, shortly after uh, Speaker Bush passed away, the, 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 the Annapolis political establishment, the statewide politics, people who were involved, we knew coming out of this that this race was going to come down to someone like Maggie or Derek. Why did we know that? Because both of them have been putting out feelers for years that they – to succeed Speaker Bush, that they wanted to become the state's next Speaker of the House, and – it would make sense, right? Maggie has been in elected office for many years, and Derek was elected, what, 25 years? He's been the chairman of this important committee. Speakers are sometimes foisted from that committee into the speakership. I know Mike Bush was the chairman of the, uh, the Economic Matters Committee before Derek Davis. And Len, the speaker has incredible power down in Annapolis, right? I mean he sets the committee chairmen's. Um, he decides what le- legislation makes it to the floor. But for a while there, I need to mention that you know, when Speaker Bush was in ailing health, was it fair to say that his staff was granted and yielded an extraordinary amount of power? I mean we're talking about Alexander Hughes, who's the ch- who was Speaker Bush's former chief of staff. Now, I don't, I don't know the scoop of whether or not she's going to stay on my understanding. I've heard that she is, but – she was granted an extraordinary amount of power, and she wielded that power sometimes in a way that upset people. I mean I know that Alex Hughes, who's very smart in her own right, who knows Annapolis, um, I felt at times that she felt herself that she was the de facto speaker, and she sometimes acted like that. She exerted her authority in ways that I think made certain members of the House of Delegates who are elected uncomfortable. What do you make of that, Lynn? Well, yeah, I think yeah, I've heard that as well, and I think that's certainly the that's certainly the the scuttlebutt around people, you know, among people who deal with the legislature on a regular basis. To me, it's less of an issue about Alex Hughes, the individual, and her colleagues on the speaker staff, and it's more of an institutional issue. And, mm-hmm. and Ryan, that's why I was hopeful that when we when this campaign was joined, that we would actually hear from both prospective candidates about what they would do to reform the institution. I, you, have to, you have to ask, well, how, why is the system geared in such a way that someone like uh, the speaker's chief of staff can wield the power of a de facto speaker um, in a circumstance like this? Well, the answer is there's too much power vested in one individual to begin with. Mm. And one of the things that Peter has called for is um, – He's called for two things. One is a two-term limit on the on the speaker and the Senate president. Both, so, in other words, both presiding officers would uh, would would serve a a maximum of two consecutive terms. So we don't have this 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 prodigious empire building that we've seen from the late Speaker Bush and from Senate President Miller, who's now who's now enjoying his 33rd year as Senate president. Is a building named after him. In history, um, and, this, and there's a there's a, a Senate and the Senate building is named after him. Uh, so two-term limit on presiding officers, a two-term limit on committee chairs. Uh, so in other words, after two year after two terms, eight years, 
someone like Derek Davis, well, maybe he can go chair a different committee, but he's not going to sit there as economic matters chairman for 12, 16, 20 years and develop those rock-solid relationships with the industry interests uh, who benefit or or suffer as a base, on the basis of his decisions and lavish him with campaign dollars and some would say gain disproportionate access in the process. I guess I should say there's a third piece of this, which is uh, Peter, and I'm talking about Peter Franchot, my boss, the state comptroller, who used to work on Capitol Hill for then-Congressman Ed Markey, he has suggested that uh, the that um, that there be a a legislative policy and steering committee consisting of members from both parties in proportion to the you know the membership would be in proportion to how many Democrats and how many Republicans there are, but they should actually have substantial input on committee assignments as opposed to just allowing the speaker and his staff to sit there with a with a diagram and moving checkers around the board based on their whims and personal feelings and likes and dislikes. I think if you did those three things, I think you would, you would make the, the, you know, the, the House of Delegates and the State Senate, for that matter, a, a more egalitarian institution. I think you would provide for more upward mobility, which would attract better people to join, participate and stay in the political process. Um, and, you would, and, and people from both parties uh, who are in the chamber would feel like they're actually empowered to make real decisions as opposed to just being told when to vote red and when to vote green, which is certainly the case now. Yeah, and if you don't vote red or green um, at the behest of the speaker, we know what happens. They they threaten right. you, and speaking of threatening, there was a letter that was written by State Party Chairwoman Dr. Maya Rockamore Cummings preceding this vote that said, look, if the if Democrats – do not support the the caucus vote if they do not support the democratic caucus's choice for speaker they went in so they went so far as threatening resources i mean that's that was a serious letter Len. and it, it and it really sort of i think inspired the congressional or not the congressional black caucus but rather the black caucus <laughs> to group together and say um Look, we don't. We're not going to subscribe to these threats. We're not going to buy into that, and it sort of backfired in a way on Dr. Cummings. And and I understand the spirit of the letter. I get it because it makes sense for the Democrats to support the choice of the Democratic caucus. The fear is or was that that Republicans who before the process even began dedicated their 42-member block that they were going to dedicate it um, in one, that they were going to support a candidate. And the fear was that Republicans could essentially help um, influence the next Speaker of the House, and the Democrats did not want to lend any power or allow the, the Republicans to make any decision in this Speaker's race. And it got to the point where they were castigating Republicans, and I saw statuses from Delegate David Moon of District 20, and I, I saw a bunch of stuff that were posted by, by Democratic members that they're supporting the Democratic caucus's choice. And it got to be almost to the point of us versus them, like, hey, we're the Democrats. We know we control Annapolis. We're going to run the gambit, and we're not going to give an inch to the Republican elected members of the, caucus, or the, of the delegation of the House. 
And it got to be the point to me where they almost wanted to box out the Republicans. Like they talk sometimes, Lynn, in this bipartisanship. They talk about the tones of bipartisanship, the spirit of bipartisanship, about how Naples is not a plagued by the same partisan rancor that plagues the Washington, D.C. inner sanctums. Well, that sort of went out the window in a way when the Democratic members – and we're talking about some of the very progressive members of the caucus – say we don't want the Republicans to have any choice in this, almost like they were being ignored and they didn't even exist. And to me that said they don't really care so much about bipartisanship as long as they're – member wins as long as a progressive wins the speaker's race lynn do you think that that contributed to some of the nastiness overall leading up to the race the the the, the caucus well, it was, vote? It, well it was a preposterous letter and it was poorly written and it was delivered at the worst possible time and i don't know what outcomes um dr cummings was was trying to achieve I think it's safe to say in retrospect that she achieved none of them. Um, to, you know, a couple, just a couple of random observations. One, you know, I, I've been in this town now for 24 years, and yeah. when I came in, when I came to Annapolis, Harry Hughes was the Democratic Party chair because you know he was the chair when Paris Glendening had just been elected, and I've seen some good ones, and I've seen some less than stellar chairs. Um, Wayne Rogers and uh, Peter Krauser are two that immediately come to mind. Terry Learman was a very good party chairman. Terry Learman and, was one of the finest chairmen, and and so was Kathleen Matthews. I mean, look look what she did for the party last last term. Well, and and yeah, the the, the role of a party chair is to raise money and elect Democrats, uh, providing providing resources, providing providing messaging support, providing you know. Providing infrastructural support where appropriate, um, and uh, that's in, in managing managing the, the vendor contracts that that the party uses to elect Democrats. Uh, at no, I have never seen anybody in my tenure in this town reach out and solicit the opinion of the Maryland State Party Chair when it comes to how we should be going about the business of electing our presiding officers or anything else having to do with the legislature for that matter. So it was a little bit of the case of Dr. Cummings driving outside of her lane, which it's okay. It, I mean, I get it, but I think if the, I think if her letter had been much shorter, that if she had simply uh, said that she, you know, in, in order to ensure that the democratic party remains united and that we continue to remain uh, resolute in our pursuit of core democratic values, I would ask respectfully that every member of the Democratic caucus respect the outcome of the caucus vote. I think that's a defensible position. I think when she went on to threaten threaten retaliation against uh, members who didn't go along with that prescription, and then certainly when she uh, when she when she chose to relitigate the events of the fall of 2018 and mention people who were insufficiently, in her mind, supportive of Ben Jealous's gubernatorial race, I thought that was unfortunate. Well, it opened that, up some wounds that didn't have to be opened, and uh, I'll say that was personally frustrating to me as well for reasons I think you would find fairly obvious. There, and, there, and I say this as someone who's bought uh, – Peter Franco has been – very, very supportive of Dr. Cummings uh, and yeah. has raised money for the party and has pledged his unconditional support. And so we were 
quite surprised to be quite put out honest. a post when too, that, right? When I know letter, that. Right, and when that when that when that letter went out, and um, you know, it seemed certain parts of it appeared to target the comptroller because I think everyone knows, you know, and we don't have to relitigate. He didn't endorse Ben Jealous's gubernatorial campaign, and it seems like he was kind of calling him out, and it was a real head scratcher, especially well, in the context of. Well, I think she was trying to accomplish. And that theme has continued on to the Democratic summit that was held this uh, yesterday and on Friday evening. Um, the theme is is that you're right. They, they some of the Democrats and the progressive side of the aisle believe that that certain Democrats insufficiently support it or did not support at all the Democratic mm-hmm. nominee for governor, and that's partially why that. Kathleen Matthews, she took the brunt, even though she she came up with a strategy of winning eight House seats and stopping the drive for five and elected two new county executives, beat a future gubernatorial candidate on the Republican side and took out Steve. I mean, actually, two rather um, in Anne Arundel County and and Howard County. Lynn, they are still uh, very upset in a way that that Mr. Jealous was not supported by the full faith and credit of the Maryland Democratic establishment. But to me, watching that race closely, you watched the race closely, wasn't the Democratic Party's problem. That was that was a jealous problem. That was a personality issue. That was an unwillingness to really get into the weeds of getting to know the, the state senators and state delegates. I mean, I, I talked to several state delegates and senators who said, look, by default, we, we will support the Democrat, but we're not going to put our neck out on the line for him. We're not going to go out and, and, and wave signs and raise money and show up and put our, our names on the side. I mean sometimes they ran away from him because of his own personal shortcomings as a candidate. It's no secret, and I think it's fair analysis um, as someone from a journalistic perspective reporting on this is that he, Mr. Jealous had a really tough battle. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. It was a, he had, yeah. Brian. He had Ben Jealous going into that race, and this is all I'll say about it because it's it's over and done. He had to. Yeah. He had to pitch the perfect game. Larry Hogan is a is an extraordinarily talented politician who had the wind at his back. Uh, is well liked. Is mm. extremely popular. High job ratings. He had a strong economy at his back, and Jealous had to pitch the perfect game, and, and for reasons that we all. You know, can remember now in retrospect, he didn't. Uh, he he made plenty of made plenty of mistakes, and yeah. the campaign was certainly wanting. Look, he's a great guy, and I hear r- reports that he might be contemplating a race for mayor of Baltimore, and that would be yeah, interesting. We'll talk about and I actually that. think he would be a a formidable candidate. But you know, it's funny that you know every time you every time I hear something, some inside party activist talking about the Vangelis race. I'm reminded of the disconnect that exists, and it seems to get wider by the day between this our small group of insider insiders and activists and the oh. electorate as a whole. I got to absolutely. Show in, the, in the last week alone, has traveled from from Garrett County to Cecil. He's been down to St. Mary's County, and he's been in most. He, he's traveled. He's tra- and he's going to be in Salisbury tomorrow. So he's traveling the width and breadth of the state, and I can you can guess how many times ordinary people come up to him in the in the supermarket or at the barber shop or at the coffee shop and 
ask him about the Ben Jealous race. It doesn't happen because it doesn't matter anymore. It's not what yeah. people have on their mind. They want to no. know, how's the, what are you hearing about the economy, Mr. Comptroller? Are we going to go into a recession? Are, are, are things going to keep going well, or we got to pull our horns back? Um, yeah, well, it's talk- that sort of thing. Yeah. Now, so, you know, Lynn, I, the letter certainly did not help Dr. Cummings, and I, I think it backfired in a way. I think it invigorated and emboldened especially members of the, Congre- uh, the, the Black Caucus to take action in a way that uh, I, I'm sure that she did not expect. I think that she wanted to lay down the hammer, and I can appreciate her. She is a, she is a strong woman. She is independent-minded, and it, I think it's vehemently unfair for anyone to directly associate her um, as the you know, secondary to her husband, um, Elijah Cummings, who is one of our congressmen and the, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, because she is – Dr. Cummings has a distinguished career of her own, and she is a formidable player in Maryland politics now. There is no doubt – I mean, consider that she beat Kathleen Matthews, who's a – uh, who I mean, look, she went out and she ran the race and she won. She, but I think she overplayed her hand in a way that did not bode well for some of the more distinguished members. Who, frank, quite frankly, the Democrats thought, well, why is the state party interfering in this process? Why do they get to tell us what to do when we were elected by the de- we were elected by our constituencies? To, to vote for who we think is the best speaker. Lynn, you're right. When did we hear from any of the candidates their platform? I mean, I know Maggie released some form of a platform, but did we ever directly hear from them on a, a radio station or any long-form interviews of why they are the best choice to lead the entire Maryland House of Delegates in what the future of Maryland would look like under their particular speakership. Why, Lynn, do you think that was lost? Because the media didn't press them on it. And I think the, I think the press corps has enjoyed a golden age over this past few months. I mean, the, the stories that the, that the Maryland press corps has broken from Catherine Pugh's corruption to Marianne oh Asante's uh, bigoted remarks. Um, Who, by the way, is still a delegate. Still a delegate for some, somehow, some way, but uh, I, I, I think that, and I, I don't think this is uncommon. You know, this is complex business, and everyone is, you know, everyone's success and failures is based in this digital world on the number of clicks and likes and shares you get on digital media platforms. I think they were uh, less focused on the substance of what both candidates were all about and what they could do to reform the institution. They were more focused on the horse race aspect. Who's ahead? Who's behind? Does Maggie have enough votes? Is the Black Caucus going to remain united behind Derek? And I think that became the, I think those became the, the narratives that captured the most public attention because that's where the media was focusing its coverage. Um, you know, I, 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 I think you know, I think we would have benefited, and it's, it's it's hindsight's always twenty. I think we would have benefited from a more substantive conversation, because I think at day's end, I think we would have found that despite the demographic differences that separate Maggie and Derek, and the uh, the fact that they hail from different political camps, their vision for the institution, based on what I have seen over my time working with both of them, their vision really isn't all that different. 
there's not that much to distinguish the two of them. Why did moderates? Um, why would you? Why do you think moderate leaning, or at least center, the center left, or uh, not all the way on the progressive side, or however you want to characterize your political leanings? But Derek got the moniker of being a moderate. Why do you think progressives were concerned about him? Especially, look, look at. Uh, uh, Jason McLaren from the SEIU, who is another major player in Maryland politics, they were actively rooting against Derek. Uh, and and some of that, maybe I didn't have all the the information <laughs> at my disposal. But why were the, well, why were some so I concerned? I, I think it's a I think it's a natural byproduct of where he where he comes from within the legislature. He mentioned that he is the long serving chairman of the Economic Matters Committee, and the Economic Matters Committee is the committee, as you know, in Annapolis that, that um, hears legislation pertaining to the banking industry and health care and the HMOs and alcohol and tobacco and petroleum and uh, you know, the big corporate interests. And um, you know, I think there was a sense among many in the progressive community that Derek uh, – you know, really did strike a, a balanced, moderate course between progressive and and uh, more moderate interests, not only within the public policy debate, but within the Democratic caucus. And I think there were some who, and I can understand this, wish that Derek had taken advantage of the progressive mood in our state and within our within the caucus, and had used his platform to advance more progressive policy goals. He didn't. It's not who he is. It's not who his committee is, and I think he paid a price for it. Maggie McIntosh has been a fixture in progressive political circles for decades, and yeah. you know she worked all those years with uh, Senator Mikulski, who was a, a liberal icon. And so I think the fault lines were very naturally drawn. But I do think some of the I think some of the the criticism of Derek was was uh, a bit um, a bit performative and uh, overwrought. I mean, you know, Derek is no one's conservative. He's a, he's a moderate. He's a centrist. He's not a conservative, and he is not certainly by no means a religious conservative, uh, as we've come to as we've come to define the term in the political system we're in. Well, how did that, so that how did that term get, how did that term get tossed around? Was it that I, I had heard something about at the beginning of the gay marriage debate that Derek wasn't fully on board. Is there any truth or credibility to that? I think you had a lot, and, and my memory of this is kind of faded with time. I wasn't really involved in that issue really to begin with. I was. That was also the year of the slots referendum, and that was where most of my <laughs> attention was focused. But, uh, you know, I, th- I think there was a lot, I think there was a lot of soul searching among, uh, you know, not only members of the Black Caucus, but among, you know, moderate Democrats and uh, Catholics. Yeah, I remember my good friend Steve Duboy, um, who was in the House at the time, Jimmy Malone. They were a couple. There were just two uh, Democrats who hailed from moderate jurisdictions in Baltimore County. Good Catholic guys who were really struggling with this, and they recognized that maybe they're on the wrong side of history, but this is kind of how they feel. And you know, it was it was a tough vote for a lot of people. Um, it was. I mean, look, Barack Obama had to come around. Remember? Sure. <laughs> I mean, sure. Hillary Clinton, all, Barack we Obama. All we uh, all, we and, all evolve. And, 
it, it, you know, and, and I was thinking about this. You asked, you asked me at the beginning of the show, Brian, what were you, what were you thinking about going in? And I was yeah. thinking, you know, Ryan, in politics, we're all salesmen. We're all just selling a product, right? Sure. Um, you know, I saw Peter Francho. He's my product. And, uh, you know, Mark McLaurin uh, sells SEIU, sells labor policy. That's his product. You know, and we're all pitching something, just like the the, the, the advertisers sell, you know, cars and, and, and uh, aspirin and dishwashing detergent on TV. What if what if what if we sold products in the private sector the same way we try to sell products <laughs> in politics? What if we what if we tried what if we tried what if Coke went on TV and said, if you're not with us, if you're not if you're not a Coke drinker, if you're a member of the Pepsi generation, you're not with us. You don't share the values of this country, and I assure you, we'll destroy you. Well, who the hell would drink Coke? You know, yeah. or what would happen if? If Ford would talk, if Ford would basically threaten Toyota drivers with, with public reprisal, if they didn't come over and embrace Fords instead of Toyotas, you know we've got to get back to the we've got to get back to the business of persuading people, uh, of the persuading people that we have a good product, as opposed to just trying to coerce them over to our side, because it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Didn't work with Hillary in 2016. It didn't work with Ben Jealous last time. And if we go down this path of setting up these litmus tests and these purity tests and drawing, building a moat around ourselves and saying to anyone who is not with us on every single issue uh, is kicked out of the club, guess what? We're going to lose again in one of the most reliably Democratic states in the country with a 2-1 Democratic voter advantage will lose its fourth gubernatorial race in six tries. Mark my words. Yeah, it's, you know, and we saw moving into the race, I think we saw identity politics played out and people got tired of that. Uh, you know, if you're not, you know, if you don't support Maggie, then you're somehow opposed to women right. or, or, uh, or opposed to the LGBTQ community. That could not be further from the truth for many of these delegates who, who lined up behind Derek. They thought that maybe right. Derek – they thought truly that Derek would have been the better choice. And, and, and similarly, look, Daryl Barnes was one who said a comment that I'm sure he regrets, and in fact, Maggie McIntosh, upon exiting the caucus room after four hours on Wednesday, was asked by someone if Derek Davis apologized for his comments, and she said yes, he did apologize. And Len, that leads us up to the day of the election. Look, I was there. I covered it. I my I tweeted all day about it. And I was standing in the lobby of the House building. It was between the Prince George Prince George's County delegation room and the Baltimore County delegation room. Or it might have been the Baltimore City. I'm not sure. But we were standing in the middle of a hallway, sort of in a foyer. And we all know what the House House of Delegates office building looks like. And the press was all gathered there. I mean, there were at least 50 members of the Maryland press, maybe more, who came down. And it was a big day. They went into their respective caucuses. Republicans went on one side. The Democrats went on the other. And we were hearing at one point that 50 votes um, or 58 came out for Maggie. And then was it 42 for – 40. Um, 40 for Derek, 58 to 40. Now – Right. Math math serves me right. 
42 Republicans would have supported Derek, putting him in 82. Maggie wouldn't have had the votes. And my understanding is that they debated. There were several speeches given by by chairman. There were several intense moments. I've heard from from the inside um, that it was a very emotionally driven day. It was an emotional roller coaster for some members um, of the caucus. And so finally, I think Derek and Maggie had met privately, and then they went back in. And I can imagine how difficult it would be for the first person to drop, and I believe Maggie made that decision, which then puts pressure on Derek, and they decided to throw out some names. Even at one point, they came up with a consensus candidate in Vanessa Atterbury. That's what was being right, reported to me on the UNS. And I asked Delegate Atterbury on my way to the <laughs> the House floor, and she declined to comment. I understand what goes on in caucus. They they're not gonna they're not gonna tell reporters, uh, and and right. so you know, here here we are today, and they decided on a consensus choice. You mentioned Adrian backed out of the race to support her colleague Derek Davis, and then someone yelled, "Well, what about what about Adrian Jones?" And then everybody got behind that concept, and you know around two o'clock that day they exited the chamber, they came to the podium. And decided and was made an announcement by our our mutual friend Eric Lukey from Montgomery County that it was Adrian Jones who was being chosen. Maggie made a quick speech, and you could see the tears rolling down her eyes. You could tell how emotionally impacted she was. It was one of the most intense caucuses of her life, and she described it on the House floor that day that it was the best caucus that she has ever attended. And if only I could have been a fly on that wall. If only any reporter for that matter could have been monitoring those discussions and reporting on it, it would have been one of the finest hours for for journalism, I guarantee you. And so Adrian Jones, you know her. The state now is getting familiarized with her. We should know her. She's been the speaker pro tem for what, 16 years, Lynn? Is that accurate? I think it's 16 years. That's right. Yeah. So right. ever since Ever since Mike Bush uh, assumed the office of speaker. So now that she has become speaker, she was sworn in uh, on Wednesday as the next Maryland speaker of the House of Delegates. We ask questions, well, what happens and how does the, this affect the the process? Will any committee chairmen stay the same? Who's going to become the next speaker pro tem? And these are all valid questions that we need to explore. So, Lynn… Now that Adrian Jones is speaker, what should we know about her? You know, it's, it's interesting, Ryan. I, I, you, you said that I, I know her pretty well. I, I really, I, I have to say, to be honest, I don't know her that well. I mean, she, I, I think there are plenty of people who know her much better than I do. But you know, she is, she is, a, she's known as a consensus seeker. She is known as an institutionalist. Someone who places a great premium and holds a great deal of value in caucus unity. Um, she seems she almost, you know, she, she kind of reminds me. Just, just having watched her work through the years, she kind of reminds me a little bit of the way. And I'm not saying that they're completely similar, but the way Ike Leggett in Montgomery County used to uh, run the council chambers as county council candidate, who and he was a person who could take just very disparate points of view and very disparate personalities and 
from that, you know, smooth over hard feelings and build levels of agreement and kind of work to a work to a, a smoother consensus. Yeah, and Ike was a master. I think that. I, I, I think I see elements of that in in, uh, in Speaker Jones as well. Um, she's never been one who has. Uh, she's never been one who sought the limelight. She's not a fixture on the talk shows and the. Yeah, the uh, yeah, the Jeff Salkin interviews on Friday night on MPT, and she's she's not she's not one of those types. Uh, she is someone who does work behind the scenes. So I think that we'll have to kind of wait and see. And you know, first up is what is the composition of the chamber going to be? Is are we going to see change or continuity? First, I mean, at first the end of at, you know the first reports are that we'll probably the you know, delegate McIntosh and delegate Davis stay in their current chairmanships, and that you know, to that degree there will be a certain level of continuity with the past. Um, we'll see. She's never had to stake out her own agenda because she's not a committee chair like Maggie and Derek are, or Kumar Barbe and some you know and, and Kaiser. So they never have had to. She's never been in a position to establish, you know, put her philosophical stamp on a on a big issue or kind of establish her own roster of priorities. So to a certain extent, in that respect, she's a bit of an unknown quantity. Um, but right off the bat, I know people trust her. Uh, they, No one would ever question her motives because she does seem to have the best interests of the public in mind um, and the best interests of the institution. Um, so she starts off with a great deal of credibility and goodwill. And I, I wish her well. We'll have to just wait and see how she chooses to govern. Lynn, it, I would be remiss if I did not ask the question, given your personal stake as you, your branding for the comptroller. How does Adrian Jones' election, and I read in Maryland Matters that they declared the comptroller a winner in this in, in the speaker race. So sure. is, is, is that a fair – is that a fair characterization that the comptroller – is com- emerging as a winner from the speaker's race. I don't, I, you know, I, I, I know what Josh wrote, and you know, I can certainly under, I can certainly understand the political rationale, given that we've, over the course of time, had our issues with both Delegate McIntosh, you know, who did openly explore a, a primary challenge in the 2018 elections, and we all know the, the history between the Comptroller and Chairman Davis and the the beer issues. Um, over the past couple of years. Uh, look, I, I think regardless of who would have emerged, Peter was prepared to, and, and is prepared to go to, the, go to the new speaker and say, listen, our challenges are great. So too are our opportunities. And we have a lot of issues. And the, the tone and tenor of the disagreements between, between me and the late Speaker Bush and my office and the Speaker's office over time, it's not helpful to anybody. Um, we can have our honest disagreements, but we can certainly go about them in a better way, and let's find those things we agree on, and let's build on those and get to work. So from that standpoint, um, it didn't matter who was going to be Speaker because Peter is going to seek a, uh, a change of tone. And um, as I said, we have – we have, we have fiscal and economic challenges that is going to demand that the legislature and the comptroller's office work together. 
Um, How- right now, the relationship has been a bit dysfunctional, and that's got to change. It has been dysfunctional. Um, and look, Peter has had to – your boss has had to push back on many elements within what he describes as the machine. And I, I hear these – I hear staffers who, of course, will deny that a, a machine-like underbelly of Annapolis – does not exist, and they say that it, it's just not there. Uh, and uh, but but it is, Len. If if delegates don't vote for certain policies, they are in effect punished. If they're seen supporting some of the comptroller's initiatives, I mean, P- Peter sometimes I I think feels like an alien inside of his own party, and there's no doubt. That you can you cannot question Peter Franco's own progressive credentials. I mean, for goodness sake, he represented District 20 for 20 years in the Maryland House of Delegates. But when Peter put on his comptroller hat, you got to look out for all people. You have to look out for all six million right. Marylanders, and not just a caucus or not just a a piece of it. it. It's it's not you can't play politics with the state of Maryland, especially when it comes to some of the more you know, I, th- I think the more germane issues that you handle, which is tax issues. People want to know that they're tax, tax issues, returns. regulatory issues. Yeah. yeah, I mean, these are, these uh, are good government issues. These are really good government issues. And that brings me to my next point. How does the com- or rather, how does the governor and how does the Senate president, does that relationship now change? I mean, of course, Miller and Bush were very close. They were friends, and I know they had their own sets of issues every once in a while and their disagreements, but for the better for, for better or worse they got they got along pretty well. So, do you think this is a positive step in the right for, direction for the governor, Len? I think I think it really depends again. I you know, and I can't emphasize this emphatically enough. You know, it, 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 are we going are we going to see a change of individuals? You know, Speaker Bush has passed away and speak, we now have Speaker Jones. And is that going to be the extent of the change, or are we going to see a a more systematic change? And and I think and I, and I think ultimately the governor's disposition to the general assembly is not that dissimilar to the to Peter's disposition toward the general assembly. Um, yeah, for him the ultimate question is um, can we go up, can we go about our business in a fundamentally different way? Um, can we be more transparent? Can we be more uh, open and responsive. Can we be more? Uh, can we, you know, get out of the? Can we uh, move beyond this perception that the, the the work is really handled in the back rooms with this unholy alliance of lobbyists and unelected staffers and a handful of senior lawmakers? If we can, if we can move forward from these vestiges of machine politics, then it will be a a positive change. If we don't, then there'll be a missed opportunity because. Brian, you know, we're seeing all over the world where, you know, whether it's Lori Lightfoot in Chicago or whether it's the outcomes of the elections in the Ukraine and Slovenia where, uh, you know, where uh, political novices, people who who hail from outside of elected office are beating longtime established machine politicians. People are looking for an end to the top-down vertical machine politics of decades gone by. And in Maryland and in Annapolis and specifically, we seem to have doubled down on it. So to the extent that this can be a catalyst for a new a new style of politics, 
then there'll be a positive thing. And that's where we're just going to have to wait and see what direction we ultimately take. But it has to happen. If we continue to embrace the top-down vertical machine politics of decades gone by, we as a party are going to lose, and the people are going to be more estranged from politics and government than they are now. Yeah, and I think you're you're on to something there, that people are looking to end this top-down politics. Why? The biggest question is why, and I think I have somewhat of an answer to that. And the answer, I think, in part is because people feel left out. They feel left out, that their voices aren't heard, that top-down, machine-driven politics exclude normal, everyday Marylanders. And I don't understand – I still don't understand how – some Democrats are grappling over why Larry Hogan won the election, and it's really not that hard. Larry Hogan is a likable, moderate figure that is not a fire-throwing person who played to exactly who Maryland is. And we are a purple state, and not every county is run like Montgomery County. Not every community is the same – has the same policies or – Beliefs as Silver Spring, Maryland. Lynn, people sure. feel left out of the process, and that is why someone like Peter Francho, who he eschews he this top-down machine-driven politics for so long. Look, he's seen it front and center, and I think at some point Peter said, you know what? Enough is enough. I'm going to go out and represent real Marylanders. Get out of the bubble. And I think – and Ryan, I think that's why – he has established, and you've you've seen it. You've con- you've commented on it in this uh, on this very show. He's established this rather singular coalition of of conservative Republicans, moderate Democrats, and center left progressive Democrats because they all share one defining characteristic. They all feel left out of the clubhouse, and they feel like they don't have the secret handshake. Decisions are being made by a few people, and they're the ones who are bearing the brunt of those decisions, but they don't get to be on the inside. And Peter speaks for them. He has made it his life's mission, his career mission, to be a voice for the voiceless, whether they are the you know, whether they are main street businesses who are wilting under the unfair advantage of corporations who make hundreds of millions of dollars yet don't pay a penny in taxes, or the craft brewers who are being held hostage by big corporate beer interests and their politically connected allies in Annapolis. Regardless of, regardless of who the constituency is, you know, Peter is going to be a voice for the outsider because he, at, his, at the end of the day, he is an outsider, and he always will be. Um, so it ruffles feathers inside Annapolis, to be sure, and we've seen kind of the, the payback over time. I also know that he got more than 1.6 million votes uh, yeah. Last year, which is the highest vote total any state candidate ever received uh, in a general election. So he must be doing something right. Lynn, um, so now that the speaker is the speaker, um, do you think that there could be a challenge next session at the beginning? I mean, I've heard that argument. What do you think? I doubt it. I uh, I'm, uh, first of all, it, it would be it would be unprecedented. Um, I think there's going to be a, a, a she, she's going to have a honeymoon period where um, she's she's united the party around her now, and 
I think there's going to be a real appetite for for giving her the opportunity to prove herself and to bring the various coalitions in the party that may have you know may have been strained as a result of this battle bring them together. I don't think there's going to be any appetite whatsoever for reopening this Pandora's box and um and you know breaking open the scabs that we saw exposed over the last three weeks. So I think the chances of that happening are zero. Well, I, I, and that's good news, I believe. I think that's that's good news for the the institution of the speaker's office so far. Let her get her feet wet. I mean, let her get her hands dirty. And yeah. and and I, she clearly knows how to do the job. She did the job, Len. She did the job, right. um, in 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 the speaker's uh, absence. So here we are, and I think this is a new moving point. I think it's a good point in Maryland politics that we get to to get this. I don't want to say start over, but we we have new leadership, and it's it's not it should not be lost on anybody how historic this moment is. The first African American female. The first African American female. That's huge, and that's progress. It, 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 it is, but, but but Brian, I, I will reiterate. Yes, it is. And uh, Speaker Jones deserves all the credit in the world for having played the game well and for having played the game nobly. Hats off to her. Uh, now it's time to capitalize on the gravity of the moment, take advantage of the platform she has to initiate some real reforms that will not only make the institution institutional process more open and transparent and inclusive, but um, create a body, a, a culture that will um, uh, re-engage the confidence of the people we serve and produce better results through better policy. So that's the Lynn, opportunity Lynn. that remains to be seen whether she takes advantage of it. So, Len, here we are, um, and I, I made a point to, to say that we had the careers of two prominent African-American females. One just began in the sense of her speakership. I mean she rose up through politics, institutional politics, and became speaker pro tem for the last 16 years. And then finally, the confluence of events led her to become speaker at a historic time in American politics and Maryland politics. On the juxtaposition of that, diabolically opposite is that another prominent former state senator who turned to be out who turned out to become the mayor in 2016, Catherine Pugh, back hardcore by the establishment, was another institutionalist. A Mike, a Mike Miller protege. Her career ended in absolute disgrace. On, on Thursday with a resignation letter read by her attorney of all people that said that she is resigning the mayor after a month and a half of being scandal plagued. But that was kicked off, in, I would say, almost exclusively by the reporting of the Baltimore Sun and especially Luke Broadwater, who I want to give a big shout out tonight because, look, I, I've never seen I, – I mean I've I've seen great journalism over the years, but – in the state of Maryland, this just takes the cake. Len, I have I, I'm disappointed that the situation had to to turn out as it did, but she should have resigned long ago. Yeah, it, and my guess is that we will find out the extent to which um, 
you know, this this whole process was a negotiation with prosecutors. You know, maybe she was leveraging her office in exchange for, um, you know, a lighter a, a lighter sentence as part of a plea deal. I don't know. Um, what I do care about is just the 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 corrosive effect that this has on Baltimore City. And Ryan, I can't tell you. I get personal about this. I'm a lifelong Marylander. I love this city so much. Um, you know, if it, it, I don't care whether you're from the shore or from Southern Maryland or out west, you know, Baltimore is the is the economic hub and is the the spiritual center of our state. It's yeah. the home of the Inner Harbor, the Orioles and the Ravens, the World Trade Center. I mean, we all that's any any kid any fourth grade kid that grows up in the state uh, looks forward to going to Baltimore because it's a big deal going to the big city. And here we are um, at a time when we are plagued by runaway gun violence, um, uh, disintegrating quality of public services. Now we have three mayors in a row who have either left office in disgrace or, in Stephanie Rawlings-Blake's case, under a cloud of executive incompetence. Um, And it's heartbreaking because – we have a situation where Baltimore has so many bankable assets, but who's what CEO is going to want to invest capital in this city, and what entrepreneur is going to want to take that chance in a city that they believe is unsafe and corrupt? And and it's, it's certainly not necessarily it certainly characterization, but you know that's the, that's the look right now, and perception's reality in this business. I think that now that Catherine Pugh has resigned after uh, being under a cloud of um, obvious ethical constraints, I, I mean, she, she should have gone long ago. Yeah. And now that the, the acting mayor, Jack Young, has become mayor, Jack Young claims that he does not want to become the next mayor, that he wants to be the, the, the president of the council. We'll see. I think that that could change. I think that that if you're in the position of being mayor, and Jack Young is going to have what, a, a year, a year left, and but now that we have to talk about the political ramifications, which means a new primary, Lynn, we're gonna ha- we're talking about a primary that I think could possibly top out to be just as big as maybe the presidential primary on the Democratic side, and I'm already hearing that you've heard this that. Ben Jealous, who was a former Anne Arundel, I think still an Anne Arundel County resident um, from Pasadena, is is considering a bid for the mayor of Baltimore City, and he would be instantly a recognizable name in that race. He would have credibility. He did well in Baltimore City in the gubernatorial election, I think, in so much as he won the, the, the city uh, over Governor Hogan, and – what are some of the other candidates? We talk about Mary Washington as a real reformer, but will she take the leap? You know, um, my own my own personal sense is that ultimately she won't. Uh, that she'll ultimately decide that uh, her best opportunity to make a lasting mark for her for her community and the communities around her community is by serving and advancing in the state Senate from the 43rd district, which, and I certainly respect that. That said, 
Brian, we're in a fluid environment. And yeah. as we've oh, yeah. seen, events, events change and uh, things evolve with such velocity that, you know, what the assumptions I have today could be completely different by Wednesday. So I'm not going to sit here and suggest for a second that I have any real hardcore intelligence on what Senator Washington may do. I'll tell you this, Ryan. If Mary Washington doesn't do it, the city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland would be well served by having someone like her uh, step up, grab a bat, and get into the batter's box and take a swing at it because, my goodness, I, I lived in D.C. I don't know if we've talked about this, but I lived in this, this, the District of Columbia for six years. And at the end of the Marion Barry era, they were talking about Washington in many of the same ways they talk about Baltimore City today. It was the murder, the murder capital of the East Coast. It was a city that couldn't even manage its own financial affairs. It had to uh, be subjugated to a, uh, a federal control board. Uh, Marion Barry was a laughing stock, stock, obviously, because of his own personal excesses. But you know what? I saw Anthony Williams, you know, came in from the outside. Uh, he was the CFO. He was a bean counter. He was a technocrat. He didn't have any, he didn't owe his election to any of the old political bosses. He came in and he changed forever the perception of Washington D.C. So I, I saw it firsthand, and I, I refuse to believe that a strong, clean, honest leader who leads with competence and who can do both the little get the little things right, and is capable of articulating a bigger vision, and doing it with integrity. I will always believe that someone like that can come in and change the outcome. Um, but I really do believe it has to be someone who comes in from outside of the old political, the old political machines. Um, Another name we hear is Brandon Scott, right. who ran on a gubernatorial ticket, a current city councilman, who ran with Jim Shea last year on a gubernatorial ticket, and he's a young guy with a grand vision. He's taken a look at the race, and I would imagine Senator Bill Ferguson is also take is eyeing up the race. Um, who else? Yeah, you know, Ryan, I, 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 will, I will say this: you, you you mentioned, and I don't mean to interrupt, but you mentioned grand vision. No, please. You, you know, I think part I think part of the disconnect that people have with their political leadership is that all the politicians are out there talking about grand visions. Everyone has a plan for transforming something, right? Um, and meanwhile, you know, like we, we hear this about this multi-billion-dollar Kerwin plan. Meanwhile, there are kids in Baltimore City who just wish like hell that maybe they could get an air conditioning unit pushed into their classroom window yeah. so they're not sweltering in 120-degree temperatures in the 1st of September and maybe – uh, fix the damn boiler so that they're not shivering in three layers of coats come January. Um, Peter went over to a, uh, a meat processing plant over on South Franklin Town Road uh, a couple of weeks ago, a place called Mangers. And there was trash strewn on both sides of the street. And the fact that people are expected to live like that and to, and to walk and drive around just mountains of trash on the street. It's insulting. How do you how do how do you expect any taxpayer resident of Baltimore City to have confidence that their government can get the big things right, can enact these 
grand visions if they can't even pick up the trash, keep the schools comfortable for the kids, and if people can't even go from their home down to the corner supermarket without fearing for their lives. You've got to get the little things right before you can enact these, these quote-unquote grand visions. That's and it's an astute point that 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 is often lost. That I, we have to take care of the residents and their needs first. And the biggest the biggest issue facing Baltimore City is that they have a crime problem that is out of control. Then it's out of control. You're right, man. So I mean, there were there were there were there were um, had, had, there were a couple more shootings in uh, in the city over the past couple of days and. Uh, we're almost to the point now where people are becoming anesthetized to the to the yeah. issue. Well, it's just yeah, that's really too bad. But you know, uh, it, when it hap- you know, it's it's like when you watch when you watch an action movie, right? The first time you see an explosion, you're not uh, you know, you're shocked. By the time it's the 15th or 16th uh, exploding building, um, the shock value is worn off. My fear and concern is that's kind of where we are with this violence. Yeah, then um, wrapping up the week, you know, look, the, the mayor's resignation, obviously, huge news. Uh, we we kind of figured that it was coming. And then this past weekend, the Democrats met for the annual Western Maryland Democratic Summit at Rocky Gap, which is a picturesque, uh, scenic uh, casino and resort on your way up the mountain to uh, Cumberland. It's um, only a few miles away from Cumberland, the Democrats met there yesterday um, in a conference that they hold every year. Your boss, Peter Francho, came up, and uh, one of the keynote speakers was new Congressman David Trone. Congressman Raskin was there. Dr. Cummings, uh, the state party chairwoman, spoke uh, around noontime yesterday. They had some plenary sessions, some breakout sessions, and they – uh, they one moving session was about a new. You'll you'll, you'll love this story, Len, and I, and I hope Peter follows up with with this with this individual. In Garrett County, the city, the town of Oakland, they um, a woman by the name of Kate Brody, African American female, um, who moved to Garrett County only recently, escaped an abusive relationship. Um, she ran for the town council, and she won by two votes. In a, in, in, a, in an election that she was never supposed to win, and she was, you know, I think one of the first African American females ever elected to this town council, and she's a Democrat in Garrett County of all places, where wow. Democrats are. I mean, it's an unbelievable story. She brought the room to tears in her story. I have it on video. It was a beautiful retelling, and uh, she is inspirational. She is going to be someone to really, truly watch in state politics. Even as a town councilwoman, her narrative is so impactful. It encourages young women to run, encourage minority women to run, and she got involved and said, I want to make a difference in my community, and I believe truly that was the highlight of yesterday's uh, summit that um, brings Democrats together. Senator Van Hollen was there, uh, uh, Attorney General Brian Frosch. You know, and one criticism, Lynn. One criticism that um, what, that I would that I would as, a, as someone who is covering the race and as a journalistic perspective would 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 chime in here is that we heard a lot of red meat yesterday, and at these conventions, 
Yes, that's to be expected. The the hot topic, of course, is Donald Trump. One of their keynote speakers, Al, Dr. Alan Lichtman from American University, talked about the steps to impeaching Donald Trump. And I think that that's somewhat myopic because Western Maryland has real issues, and David Trone did a great job of, of highlighting those important issues to his district. Instead of talking about impeaching the president, and I understand that's on the tip of every Democrat, many Democrats' minds, is the Democrats should explore the reasons why in an open and honest and transparent setting about why they are not connecting with rural voters. And to have those breakout sessions and those strategy sessions instead of about the national red meat stuff, but get to the Get to the bottom of why they're not connecting with rural voters in Washington County or in Allegheny County or in Smithsburg or down in, in places like Salisbury or Ocean City uh, or over in Caroline County. Lynn, they, they, they've got to understand first what the problem is before they can find a solution to it, and they, many people got up yesterday and talked about some of these red meat issues. And now I will say that the, the panel on the women um, running for office, that was very impactful because I think when women run for office, they win. And it's, it, it's great that w more and more women are stepping up and running and, and winning. But we still need to understand from, that, from their perspective of why they continue to have some sort of disconnect with, with rural voters. And, and I, don't, I feel like that they didn't get to the bottom of that yesterday. Well, there's really not much to talk about, honestly. Uh, Peter Francho, and I, I'm sorry to bring everything back to Peter Francho, but he, no, he is the guy who signs my paychecks. But uh, And this is a guy who's running for his fourth term in office, so he's certainly a known quantity to the people uh, of Maryland. And he actually won um, 22 counties uh, around the state. He won places where... Democrats haven't won in decades, places like Caroline yeah. and Carroll. He got 71% in Talbot County, which is as deep red as any place, one St. Mary's, um, one Allegheny County where you were yesterday. And I think you have to go back to Joe Curran's 2002 attorney general reelection to find a Democrat who last carried Allegheny County. And, you know, it's not hard. Uh, you got to show up, not just for the, not just for the summits, not just for the big party events, but you got to go out there enough time after time, year after year, so that when you're walking through the streets of Cumberland and you pop into Otto Viani's restaurant for a bowl of Italian wedding soup, people are comfortable calling you by your first name. Um, yeah. It gets back to that old saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So you got to be there, and that's half the battle. Um, number two, you got you got to demonstrate to them that you're willing to do the little things right, because you know, they're you know voters in the rural settings aren't that different from the voters in the big city. They're not interested in your grand vision until they can demonstrate that you can answer the phone, provide people with good information, and help them fix their problem. And that's what we all yeah, crave. It's customer right? service. It's customer, it's customer service. service. That's whether you're talking about Wells Fargo or Bank of America or Verizon or the Maryland Comptroller's Office, you just want a friendly voice on the other end of the phone. And number three, you got to talk to them about it. You got to have an honest conversation and speak honestly about the issues they care about and not just about the things that you want them to care about. 
And if you're going out in places like Allegheny County, where they just announced that the paper mill out in Lucas closing and 300 jobs are, are, are going out the window. 675. 675. You're right. You're right. I, I, I misspoke. And, and a place yeah, that no, already no. has one that already suffers from generational poverty and high unemployment and catastrophic levels of substance abuse. If you go out there and you, and you, and you talk about impeaching Donald Trump and about these other progressive litmus tests, and you don't even make a nod to the economy, you're going to miss them. You're not, you're not going to make that connection. Just not going to happen. And you've missed an well, opportunity. Give- you may, you may feel good. You may feel good. Uh, and and the and the and the other and your other and your fellow you know uh, activists will feel good, but you haven't made a dent. But what's and, the point? What? But at what point, Lynn, do dem, do some of the Maryland Democrats that are leading the party infrastructure speak beyond the activists? They, they we always talk about inclusion, bringing more people into the party, or at least attracting independents or even those Republicans that. Could could vote for independent-minded Democrats. They have to come to a point where Republicans and Democrats are speaking beyond the base, beyond the activists, beyond the the red meat consumers, and start talking to people who don't necessarily follow politics every day or listen to the podcast or a minor detail or read your Maryland Matters or uh, the Baltimore Sun. People that pick up the Cumberland Times News, and you know. Lynn, I'll 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 end on this note. I uh, I stayed in Frostburg uh, on Saturday or, or Friday night. I I got an Airbnb and, and stayed right down off a of, uh, in this beautiful, uh, nicely decorated, totally reconstructed Airbnb. And somebody asked me why I'm not, why I'm not staying at a hotel. Well, first of all, hotels are expensive, and I like to support the local economy. Anytime I go. Um, I like to, to give money into people's pockets who are in, in part of the local economy, and that's what Airbnb does. Now, I went to a little bar that has a huge section, a huge craft beer selection, and I actually tagged you on the post on that one. And I, I, and saw I sat it. next to, yeah, and and this is just a really cool place. It's a it's a wide open space. They had a huge bar. It was popping that night, and I walked in, and I I, I probably looked a little out of place because I was wearing a um, a jacket and a, a coat and tie and you know, khakis, which is my standard uniform. I you were and um, <laughs> yeah, right. They probably they may have or no. So I I sat at the end of the bar and I I ordered a uh, I ordered a beer and uh, I got a a, chi- a a chicken sandwich and, and a salad to eat because I hadn't had anything all day. And I sat next to you'll you'll find this really interesting. I sat next to. Um, Two men who were married to one another in Frostburg, two gay men who loved Trump, and we were talking and we had this long conversation. And I, of course, told them who I was and uh, what I was doing there. And you know, they aren't interested in what I what I gleaned from that conversation is that they want to know what elected politicians and officials are going to do for them, and they're concerned about losing the job, the bartender. The guy who waited on me, a, a guy that was at Frostburg State University, said, Ryan, I don't know what I'm going to do. My dad worked at this mill, and it's going out of business, and he's been there for several years, and you know, what can he do now? You know, and what, and, you know, it's insulting when, when people who lose their jobs and then 
they're told that they need to learn how to do coding. Len, there's nothing more insulting than that. It's ridiculous. Um, and we had a conversation about real issues that affected economically depressed areas like Cumberland, like Frostburg, because Western Maryland, is, they're losing jobs. They're losing these big manufacturers. And these, these two gay men that were married to one another, who were the nicest people I've ever met, said, you know, for us, that we, we saw Trump as somebody who represented something different. And, of course, you know, there, there's not a whole lot of personal ir, ir, redeemable qualities about Trump as a human being and say what you want about his character. But they still they, – they're, they're not people watching, tuning in every day to MSNBC on the latest stuff on Mueller or Barr. These are people who get up and go to work every day that just want to be able to leave something to their kids, to their family members, to their, you know, to their cousins and aunts and uncles and want to, want to have that little piece of the American dream. And it really hit me that night that I'm, I'm sitting up here in God's country in Western Maryland where I, I mean, I grew up in Hagerstown, but Len, people aren't always following closely the national politics stuff. They, they're following closely about getting up and going to work and making sure that their families have what they need to survive. And so I, I just wanted to highlight that moment. It was really impactful that I got to sit down and talk to those guys. So why aren't we talking about the economy, right? Because I believe now, as it as it was in 1992, it's all ultimately about the economy. Stupid. And yeah, Donald Trump has some very positive economic indicators at his back, right? I mean, the, the unemployment rate, uh, job figures, uh, the stock market is doing relatively well. But when you go one level below and you actually take a, a closer look at how that's affecting or not affecting the lives of real people and the middle class and the working class and those on the economic <clears throat> margins, you realize, is, you realize that this, this economic prosperity is a mile wide and inch deep. And yeah. uh, we've seen it in Maryland, Ryan, that yeah, unemployment is at a historic low, and I'm never going to root against that. I'm happy about that because that means that people are working. But right. we also see that wage and salary, uh, wage and salary data is surprisingly flat, given the surge in in in, uh, in jobs. And what that means is these are people who are uh, maybe working fewer hours, uh, or they've had to take a pay cut, or they haven't gotten their performance bonuses. Or something has happened so that you know they all show up on the unemployment rolls, but their paychecks haven't gotten any bigger. Meanwhile, the cost of living is getting higher, cost of higher education is is growing, so they're concerned about putting their kids through college, and in the back of their mind is always the stress: Am I going to have enough money to live through retirement? And um, those questions are every bit as salient now as they were ten years ago. And if we allow ourselves to surrender the economic argument to Donald Trump and focus on things like impeachment, which are never going to happen, and the people yeah. don't want it to happen, then shame on us. We deserve to lose. I mean, if we surrender the economic lane to Donald Trump, we will lose in 2020. And they'll be like yeah, a, a hitter going up to the plate and, and, and striking out by not even swinging at the pitch. A good analogy. So, Lynn. Well, I'm watching. I, I the, I'm watching we, the Cubs and I'm watching the Cubs and, and Cardinals. So I have baseball in the brain while we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I uh, I'm I, I was watching some games earlier today, and uh, Sundays are a nice catch-up day where you can go back and read about sports and whatnot and get a lot of work done. 
But, uh, Lynn, it was a hell of a week in Maryland politics, one that I hadn't seen before. And it, it was it's also, uh, for me, a unique opportunity to be front and center to that history. We saw history being made this week. I want to give a shout-out again to the to the journalist and some of the reporters at the Baltimore Sun who uh, look, think about it. If we didn't have someone like Luke Broadwater who was relentless in the pursuit of the truth on the Catherine Pugh story, then it's probably unlikely that if this had never been exposed, she would still be in office today. No um, question. And, and, and that's, that speaks to the level of, uh, of where we are in this country and what journalism means to us uh, as, as a nation, as the fourth institution uh, of government. So um, it's, uh, it, it was, like I said, it was something to behold this past week in Maryland politics. So, and my friend, it's always fun to, to have these conversations with you, to, to dissect these issues. And for anybody who was watching, I appreciate, uh, or rather listening to the show, um, to to keep listening to a minor detail and Lynn, maybe one of these days we'll, we'll make it big. <laughs> Brian, let me just say, you're being very modest about your own role in, in the coverage of the event as the unfold. You, my friend have done yeoman's work, as I've said, and in so doing you have enlightened, informed and engaged the, the, uh, the body electric. And um, you should be proud of it because you're making a difference, uh, and an informed, an informed electorate uh, stands a much better chance of being one that is capable of demanding the change. And so, you are part of something very special. And just keep up the great work, buddy. Uh, it means a lot to me. I I appreciate you coming on and spending an hour and a half of your Sunday evening with with the show. Um, and uh, I know you'll come back. And uh, our next big event. Would probably be what MML? I think that's right. MML. Be, uh, can you believe it's MML? Can you believe it's next month in Ocean City? Next month, and um, we're going to do. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try. We definitely should consider <laughs> doing a show after Talls, right? Like we did last year. Well, uh, I, I I have it on my calendar. I assumed we were. I didn't know if I'd been fired or not for for poor performance, but if you're up for it, I I'm looking forward to it. Lynn, it'll be even bigger than it was last year because we'll want to advertise the event and we'll we'll fill up the uh, what's the bar that we went to the last time? What was that? Where Snappers, we went right uh, on the water. Snappers Waterfront Cafe, yes, sir. Yeah, Snappers. We'll fill that place up, bring up some business, uh, have a few beers, and talk about politics. Um, and uh, this year, I got a formal invitation from uh, Bruce Barriano to join us to, to come join his temp, and I still. If you haven't got your tickets for Talls and you want to, to to hang out in Bruce's tent, then make sure you call his office and pick those up because they go fast. What a legend. Um, hey, and, and Ryan, there's no reason at some point, rumor has it, you come down to St. Michael's from time to time. Uh, there's no reason we couldn't get together in, in St. Michael's and uh, put up your equipment and uh, do something right there on Talbot Street. So you find, you find a place and – yeah, it's we'll close for me, uh, and that, that, those are your stomping grounds. <laughs> those are. We're, we're becoming, uh, you know, sort of weekend residents of St. Michael's. We love it so much. We could always go down to Carpenter Street Saloon at Johnny Mounce's bar and set up shop where that's where the locals go. That would be fun. That, and, and get that Johnny w- involved. He would, man, he, w- he would be like a pig in a poke. He'd love it. it is he your delegate? He is. 
He is. Okay. And, uh, and tell you what a small town the Eastern Shore really is. Johnny and I were actually we. I was a member of the Cambridge Little League All Star team back in 1982, and we were the arch nemesis of the Eastern Little League All Star team that eventually made it all the way to Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And who was an outfielder on that team? None other than Johnny, Johnny Mouse. And uh, and so whenever we get together, you might think we're talking about the issues of the day. We're talking about we're talking about. Uh, Brian Niski throwing against Jerome Tillman for the District 6 title back in July of 82 and how Cambridge probably should have won that game, um, which Johnny will obviously disagree with. But, you know, the shore, as you, as you know, the shore is a big region, but it's really a small town at heart. And we it's should come down and spend, we should come down and spend, more, some, spend some more time with us down here. Well, that's, I mean, I love, I love the shore. It feels like home. Um, it feels a lot like Western Maryland, the type of people. But we've always been. We've always felt welcome. It's where we were married. It's where I was engaged. Um, some of my very finest memories of my life have been uh, been spent there. And let it be an honor and pleasure to come down and just hang out and we'll chill out. But uh, my friend, um, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be an interesting couple of months moving forward to see. What happens um, at the state politics? I'll be following it at a minor detail, and uh, we'll cover it. We'll keep doing it and keep covering it and uh, keep putting this content out. So, Len, thank you so much. I'll let people get back to their, you, their, game of, their Game of Thrones, which I, don't, I haven't watched a single episode in my life. I'm proud to say I don't know anything about it. Um, but uh, I think Game of Thrones comes on every Sunday night now. So, now I'm going to bed. Game's over. Yeah, my game's well, over, and I'm going to get some shut-eye. <laughs> yeah, me too. My friend, it's always a pleasure, and thanks for coming on. You too, buddy. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right, take care. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to A Minor Detail. My name is Ryan Minor. Find me on the web at aminordetail.com and listen to A Minor Detail on CastBox, iTunes, any application that you listen to your podcast on. Well, I'm signing off. Everybody have a great week. Thank you so much. You can subscribe to a Minor Detail podcast on iTunes, CastBox, Overcast, or any application where you listen to podcasts. Like a Minor Detail podcast on Facebook and follow the conversation on Twitter at AMD Podcast. If you or someone you know is interested in sponsoring a Minor Detail podcast, please reach out to me at ryan at a minor detail.com. Thanks so much for listening.